Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rabbi Dovi Ben Shushan from Congregation Magen Avraham here on JRoot Radio. Lucky enough to be able to spend with you the next 45 minutes to an hour in the words of Hezuk. Many years ago, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough, to spend some of the better years in Eretz Israel as a Bachur learning in Yeshivat Itri in Yerushalayim. I was there for about three and a half years as a Bachur, and then Baruch Hashem, coming back to the United States, I was lucky enough to meet my wife, and then with her, was able to go back again to Eretz Israel to learn for another few years in Kolel. Now, before I got married, besides the highlight of the learning that I experienced in Eretz Israel, which there's no words to describe what it means to learn in Eretz Israel, that's the truth. But nonetheless, there was one event that I think I never forget, and that was later on known as the War of Desert Storm, where there, the United States, along with a coalition, went, thanks to the uh, Bush administration, and they went after Saddam Hussein. But at that time, Eretz Israel was being pounded with missiles. And as the Tehillim were coming at us, the Tehillim were coming out of us. And it was, it was a time that as a boy, an American boy, in a society that, you know, you thought you only saw this stuff on the movies. And then all of a sudden, you actually are in it. You're living it. The sirens are going off. And you have to find cover. And growing up in America, you, you wouldn't believe that you'd find yourself in that type of a position. And there it was, you know, we had the, we had the Cheder Atum. The Cheder Atum was a sealed off and closed off rooms. Where in the dormitory, in the yeshiva that I was in, there was one room designated, designated on every floor. That that was the room, that was the sealed off room. And it turns out that the room was already pre-sealed. And then when the sirens would go off, all the guys would run into that room. And they would just basically seal off the door. And we would sit there listening to the radio after everyone had their gas masks on. And we would actually wait until you got the green light to leave. I mean, this is an experience that really hits home. And it's amazing. No matter where you went in Israel at that time, even if you'd go out to the cleaners just to pick up your clothes and come back, you'd have to go with a little cardboard box. And everybody was carrying around this cardboard box. And inside that little cardboard box, there was a strap. It looked like a mini pocketbook that everyone was wearing and walking with. And inside was the gas mask. So no matter where you are, you had it with you because that siren can go off at any time. And that just became a way of life for those four to five months between, I think it was September, all the way up until almost March, up until Purim. I'll never forget, at that time, everyone thought that this war was simply about Iraq, Saddam, and the Bush administration going after them. It turns out that many years later, we look back, and there was a treasure that we recovered from that war that nobody knows about. And this is amazing. I want you to hear this. There was a treasure, literally a treasure, that thanks to the American government, the United States forces, after finally beating Saddam and taking over Iraq, so they went down to the basements of the government buildings in downtown Baghdad, and they found all different types of manuscripts of great Talmudic Chachamim. And you're not going to believe what they found down there. They actually recovered one of the manuscripts of none other than the Benish Chai. It was under four feet of water. And how that survived the last century? Underwater. And they were able to bring it back to the United States, and they resuscitated these manuscripts. 
and they brought it and gave it over to one of the Jewish federations, who gave it over to a federation of rabbis here in, Brooklyn, in New York, who they were working on these manuscripts for some time. And many of the new books and the new chidushim that are coming out right now of the Ben Ishchai and his works on Torah and Shas came from this amazing find some 20 years ago in the war that we knew as Desert Storm. So we thought, at least the Bush administration definitely thought, they were going in there to teach Saddam a, a, a lesson and maybe to grip some of his oil. All right, we won't talk about that on tape. But, but, but the bottom line is we thought through this whole smokescreen and the rockets and the missiles and everything that was going on, and it was a war. And wow, the world was like standstill at that time. But who knows? Maybe all of that is what it took to bring back another treasure of the Ben Ishchai to the Jewish people. And that was recovered, and that was brought back to the United States. And they've been working on those manuscripts ever since. And they've been putting out gems and diamonds of the beautiful literature, the beautiful manuscripts of what the Ben Ishchai has to offer all over, all over Torah. I'd like to share with you today one of those gems. One of those gems that were recovered under four feet of water in the basements of the government buildings of Baghdad in Desert Storm. And I got this, and ladies, you know, I know you heard the term, this is fresh off the press. No, no, this is before it was ever pressed. This wasn't pressed yet. This was never printed yet. A very good friend of mine is one of the guys that are working on these manuscripts. And he calls me up last week and he says, wow, I, I got to share with you this amazing pshat of the Ben Ishchai on this week's parasha. And I said, great, I don't have a speech. Let me go, what do you got? And he comes and he tells me this something. I, to me, this was an eye opener. This was a, an amazing pshat. This was a wow. And I think, ladies, that once you hear these, this pshat, the words of rabbis, great rabbis, the words of great tzaddikim, great tamidei chachamim gidolim, you'll never take them the same way again you'll realize that their words reflect them. And just like they are holding beyond this world, their words are multifaceted, clearly holding beyond this world as well. And you can't take those words lightly. And you definitely can't take those words on just simple face value. Wait till you hear this shot. To me, I thought this was a while. I was waiting to share this with you. Listen to this. We all know Yaakov Avinu, he starts out, and he leaves the house running away from Esav. And here Yaakov Avinu, he comes to that amazing night. The night after 14 years of learning day and night, Yeshiva and Shem Vayever. And now Yaakov Avinu, he finds himself one night, and he's going to now sleep that night on that spot. And that's the night that he had the amazing dream of Yaakov Avinu, the dream of the latter. The ladder that its footing was on earth and it reached all the way up to the heavens. And he watches as the angels going up and down this ladder. Later on for the Midrash to explain to us that those angels were going to be the symbolism of all the nations of the Goim that are going to go up the ladder and their we, Klal Yisrael, are going to fall exile to them. But they're going to go up a certain year, amount of years in power, but then they're going to fall. And then they're going to go up further, other nations, and then they're going to fall. And sure enough, he sees the angels of Babel. They go up 70 steps of the ladder. 
showing that they're going to be in power for 70 years, and then they fall. And then he saw the angels of Midian, of Madai, going up the ladder for a little bit more than that, and then they fall. And then he sees the angels of Paras, of Persia, and the story of Purim, as the angels ascend the ladder another few years, and then they fall. And then finally he sees the angels of, of Edom, who are ascending up that ladder, and they're not falling. And they're going up and up and higher and higher, until finally the Tanchuma says they fall. It's amazing. What a dream. Ladies, that dream started with a moment that I'd like to discuss before I tell you the amazing Ben Yishchai. Yaakov Avinu. He's about to lay down. Do you know the Khatam Sofer writes that this was the first night that Yaakov Avinu slept in 14 years. That means that when they say that he learnt Yomam Valayla, they meant, like, it was an expression. They literally meant that he learnt Torah in the yeshiva of Shem Ever, Yomam Valayla, day and night. And he didn't stop learning, day and night, for 14 years. And finally, after 14 years, now he's on his way to the house, the final wife, the house of Lavan, the house of Bituel, as his mother originally sent him. And by the way, I do want to mention, the Gemara Mesechet Migila writes, that the 14 years that Yaakov Avinu was away from his parents, those 14 years he did not have to answer for the lack of kibbutz avim. And the Gemara Masechet Megillah says something in eye-opener. And it's good he came today because I didn't say this on a Shabbat class. The Gemara says over there, Gadol Talmud Torah Yoter Mi kibbutz Avaim. Talmud Torah is even greater than kibbutz Avaim. How do we know this? Says the Gemara, we know this from Yaakov Avinu. The 22 years that he was in the house of Lavan, he had to answer for the fact that he was away from his parents and he couldn't do kibbutz Avaim. But the 14 years that he was in yeshiva, he did not have to answer for. Those 14 years he was learning Torah. Those 14 years he was involved in something that was the biggest and the greatest of any mission that one can do in this world. And that is the Torah learning. And that's why a lot of times I have parents that tell me, But Rabbi, kibbutz Avaim, I don't want to send my kids to Israel. I don't want them to go there to learn. And uh, I don't tell them this Gemara. Because if I would, they'd throw me out of the house. But the truth of the matter is, learning in Judaism takes precedent. And he was there for those 14 years. And then after that, he went to the house of Lavan for 22. And everybody asks, but wait one second, Rabbi, I don't get it. When he was in the house of Lavan, he was doing his parents' bidding. His mother sent him there and told him to go get a wife and come back. And if that's the case, why was he violating keyboard of M? While he was there, he was doing his mother's will. Did you ever think about that question? But you know what? The Gemara says that because he was away from his parents for 22 years, it was destined that his son Yosef is going to be sold and taken away from his father Yaakov for 22 years. So we see he really played, paid a big price for this. So he had to be in violation. But why was that called a violation of Kibbut Avaim when in essence he was there because his mother told him, go there and get a wife. What was he doing wrong? He was doing his mother's will, his mother's bidding. His parents wanted him to be there. So just as an aside, you should know this because many don't know this pshat. After 14 years, Esav, says the Midrash, calm down. Esav's anger subsided. It goes to show you what learning does. When you involve yourself in Torah, even your enemies come around. When, and I have many stories on this of people that had problems with other people in the way of enemies. And they couldn't believe it when we told them to go and give money to Limud Torah. And suddenly, the hatred against them turned to nothing. 
subsided. And by the way, if anybody wants this, today is the most random speech I've ever given in my life. I want you to know this because I was supposed to tell you this Benish Chai, and I gave you a whole intro on it about Baghdad and Desert Storm. I didn't even get close to it yet, so I'm getting there. But this is a lead up because I'll tell you the truth. This parasha, Vayetze, is packed. This is one of those parashiot that you don't think of what I'm going to say. You think of what I'm not going to say. It's one of those parashiot. I mean, there's so much. There's so much. So here it is. So what's the chat? Yaakov Avinu, why is he in violation of Kibbutz Avayim, 22 years? He was there and his parents sent him there. And the answer is an amazing answer because those 14 years that he was in yeshiva, learning Torah, that diffused Esav's anger. While we're learning Torah, the Goyim cannot touch us. While we're learning Torah, we are immortal, we're untouchable. And because of that, Esav relaxed. Our enemies relax when we learn Torah. When we don't learn Torah, that's when we have a problem. That's when we have issues. Nonetheless, Esav relaxed, and Rivka Imenu sent a message to Yaakov. Yaakov, your brother is no longer angry at you. Come home. You know who, sent, who she sent a message with? Devorah, her meneket. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've learned a little bit over the years about this famous tzaddiket, Devorah. She was the meneket of Rivka. When they sent Rivka to the house of Yitzhak to marry at the age of three, with her came Devorah, the meneket. Goes to show you how young she was. She came with a meneket, which was really a wet nurse, right? And she's going to get married, which is an unbelievable concept. But nonetheless, think about this for a moment. Rivka sends Devorah. Tell Yaakov, my son, the coast is clear. He can come home now. Esav is not angry anymore. And sure enough, Yaakov gets the message, and he doesn't come home. Aha! There's the violation. There's the violation. So now Yaakov Avinu stays in the house of Lavan for 22 years when his parents asked him to come home. Now already, because he was there for 22 years, it was destined that he's going to have a son that's going to be away from him for 22 years as well. So here it is. We're holding in the interim stage. He leaves Shem Ever. He's on his way to get his wife and then wives in the house of Lavan. And he's at the spot that at first, V'anochi lo yadati. I didn't know that this is Manora Makomaze. I didn't know, says Yaakov Avinu, that this is the spot of the future Bet Amikdash. I didn't know. And here it is, the first night in 14 years that Yaakov Avinu actually sleeps. And that night he has this amazing dream. And he has prophecy. And the next morning he wakes up, Manora Makomaze. That night, before he went to sleep, Hazal tell us, as we learned when we were little kids, that there were 12 stones that all came together as one. Now this past week, to the men, not to the women, I gave a class on the history of the Evin Ashitiyah. In the yeshiva world, they call it the Evin Ashitiyah. That's the way we grew up. The Evin Ashitiyah. The Evin Ashitiyah was the famous legendary rock that was known as the cornerstone of the world. It held up the world. Don't mess with this rock. If you move this rock, you can have big troubles. This rock was meant to be at the core of the earth. Says Orachim HaKadosh. The Evin HaShetiyah, guess what? That rock that Yaakov Avinu slept on, the one that came from 12 rocks, miraculously came together as one rock. That rock is the Evin HaShetiyah. That was the rock that in the time of Bayit Sheni, when we didn't have an Aron Kodesh in the Kodesh Kodashim, says the Mishnah Mesechet Yuma, what replaced the Aron? The Evin HaShetiyah, the rock that Yaakov Avinu slept on that night. I mean, here's something cute. This past week, a guy comes to me and says to me, Rabbi, you know, it's bothering me. 
I don't get it. If God already made a miracle that 12 rocks can come together and form one big rock, then why couldn't he just make a miracle already and have 12 rocks come together and form one big pillow? And he was very serious. He says, Hazid, why are you having the tzaddik lay on a rock and sleep on a rock? But he was very serious. He wasn't kidding around. So now I had to give him a, a serious answer. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to tell this guy? One thing I can tell you right now, from the standards of his question, this guy does not go to motels. I guarantee you that. This guy's one of these five-star HL guys. You know what I'm saying? Because if he's complaining already about the pillow, you, you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So I said to him, you know what? You're asking a good question. And I think the right answer is the following. When we were told as kids that these 12 rocks came together, the Midrash says that they were fighting. They were fighting over who is the tzaddik going to put his head on. So finally, out of this fight came a certain unity in a certain way. Out of the fight, Hashem made a miracle and all the rocks came together. I told him, out of machloket, nothing comfortable comes out. He says, Rabbi, oh, that's the answer. I was looking at as long as you're happy, buddy. As long as you're happy, as long as that does it for you. That's all that matters to me. Nonetheless, ladies, I'd like you to hear what came out of this amazing moment. This rock, legendary, went on to be the Evan Ashutiyah. Legend has it that these very rocks were the rocks that Yitzchak Avinu was brought on for the Akedat Yitzchak. It's the same spot. It's the exact same spot. It's the Makom Kadosh. It's the future site of the Kodesh Kodashim. It's the future site of the Bet HaMikdash. And this Evan Ashutiyah will, in essence, be the future site of the cornerstone of the Bet HaMikdash as well. Now, I'm going to tell you something fascinating. I don't know why I'm telling you this. This was not part of my drasha. But let me just tell it to you because that's where my head is right now. You have to understand that there's an amazing Tosafot. That Tosafot writes that this famous Evan Ashitiyah, we have all different types of conflict. On one hand, it was supposed to be the cornerstone of the earth. And that means it was supposed to be around way before Yaakov Avinu. On the other hand, we're saying now that that was the rock that Yaakov Avinu slept on that night. Make up your mind. At what point of history was the initiation of this famous rock, Evan Ashitiyah? Apparently, this rock gets around. And I'll show you what I mean. If you want to hear it. Says to Asafo, this is a find. Says, don't worry, I'm going to get to the Benish Chai. Don't worry, I'm going to get there. Says to Asafo, something amazing. When Shalomah Melech was building the Bet HaMikdash, as he was putting up those massive rocks to build the walls of the Bet HaMikdash, Shalomah Melech picks up the Evan Ashitiyah and he places it in the wall. And the rock says to Shalomah Melech, says the Tosafot, don't put me in this wall. I refuse to be part of the building of this Bet HaMikdash because you and I both know that it's destined to be destroyed anyways. Why build me into something that eventually will fall in a few years? I want to be put in the binyan that's Olme'ad. I don't want to be put in a temporary building. And because of that, the rock jumped off the wall. Shalomo picks up the rock and puts it back on the wall. The rock jumps off the wall. This is Tosafot. What I'm telling you here is Tosafot. I have the paperwork there to prove it if you want to see it after the class. Finally, Shalomo, he He swore. He may have to swear to the Evan Ashitiyah, to the rock, that you are going to be placed in the one wall that will never fall. And he placed it in the Kotel Hamaravi. And although the rest of the Bet HaMikdash fell, that wall never fell. And says to Zafot, you know what kept that wall? That Evan Ashitiyah is in the wall of the Kotel, says to Zafot. So when you go to pray, little did you know, you might be leaning on the very stone 
that Yaakov Avinu's head was on. Now let's understand this rock. Yaakov Avinu, when he woke up the next morning and the miracle took place that you had this large rock, which by the way, the Arabs believe, they think, that it's the Dome of the Rock. They're dead wrong. Because the Midrash teaches us that the rock in the morning, in order to make it a little bit more comfortable for the tzaddik, it was only three etzbaot off the ground. That cannot be the rock that you see on Google. If you saw the Dome of the Rock, it's huge. That's not three etzbaot. I guess depending whose fingers we're counting here. If you're counting with Og Melech Habashan's fingers, then maybe it is, you know. But in a typical place, I, I, would, very, I would doubt that that's the... And according to the Tosafot, I just told you clearly, it's not there. Okay, but nonetheless, there are many different mysteries and history behind this legendary rock. I'm not here to give that list today. That was something to the men, maybe a different time. But I do want to say that what Yaakov did the next morning when he woke up, and he realized after the dream he had, and the revelation, and the prophecy, he said, Man, what am I didn't know that Anochi Hashem Elokecha was here. That this is the spot. This is the spot of the future Beit HaMikdash and the future Kodesh Kodashim. And this is the spot that my father Yitzchak was brought up as Akeda Yitzchak. That amazing moment that Yitzchak Avinu gave his life as his father Avraham went to slaughter him for God's sake. I didn't know that this was the spot. So what did he do? He took oil and he anointed the rock and he literally was Mikadesh, he made it holy, and later on he was going to bring Korbanot on it, and so on and so forth. Everybody wants to know the famous question. They all ask this question. Where did he get the oil from? You see, when he left his parents' house, he left incredibly wealthy. But then Eliphaz came along, the son of Esav, and Eliphaz came to kill Yaakov Avinu. I mean, he was doing the will and the bidding of his father. Esav sent his son to kill Yaakov. Eliphaz comes up to Yaakov. Eliphaz learned Torah by Yaakov Avinu. And he couldn't kill him. It was his Rebbe. It's amazing. That's so why I remind my guys every now and then. I said, guys, even if one day, God forbid, you know what I'm saying? Just remember, your Rebbe's your Rebbe. You're not, you're not worse than Eliphaz, for heaven's sake. No matter what goes down here. But nonetheless, Eliphaz. So Yaakov Avinu tells him, as we all know, that an Ani, a poor man, is considered dead. So Yaakov Avinu, the Lamdin, he explained to Eliphaz, you can still go home to your father, and you can still tell him Yaakov is dead. By what? By taking everything. And he took everything. Not only did he rob him of all his money, that's an understatement, he took his clothing. Yaakov Avinu was left bare. Yaakov Avinu was hiding in a river, says the Gemara, after Eliphaz took everything that he had. So if he took everything he had, where did he get the oil from? Where did the oil come from? So, okay, you might tell me, listen, Rabbi, uh, once we're dealing with 12 rocks, becoming one rock, miracles are happening, so you know what I'm saying? Uh, maybe the oil is also miraculous. Maybe. But it doesn't seem that way. The Torah doesn't mention any miracles evolving around the oil, and neither do the Midrashim. No one talks about where he got the oil from. It's amazing. Where did he get the oil from? He had no clothing. Where did he get clothing from? Well, as far as the clothing goes, the Midrash tells us that Yaakov Avinu was hiding in the river, as not to be embarrassed, as the water covered him right up to his neck. And just then, a sheik, a sheikh, a sheik, comes riding by, and his horse stumbled. And when the horse stumbles and trips, the rider is thrown. And this sheik was thrown into the water. Obviously, the guy couldn't swim, and he drowned. So he floats right up to Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, the halakha is, that at that moment, everything of that person is hefkeh. So he took the clothing off of the sheik. 
By the way, now you understand why when Yaakov Afinu made it to the house of Lavan, Lavan refused to believe him that he had no money. <laughs> he comes walking in with Ferragamo shoes. Listen to this. <laughs> he, he comes walking in with an Armani suit. He's dressed like a sheep, for heaven's sake. He's coming in looking like a million bucks. And he's crying poverty? What do you think this is? A tuition committee of a school? This, this, is, this is Lavan here. You drive, up in a, you drive up in a Lexus and you come on. He walks in and he has mamash. He looks like a million bucks. And yet, manduflus. That's why Lavan checked his teeth. Checked his teeth. That's how far he was looking to find the gold, the gold, you know, the gold fillings. He didn't believe in him because he looked like a sheik. That's where he got his clothing from. Okay, so he explained to me where he got the clothing from, but what about the oil? Where he got the oil from. Oh, this is a big one. This deserves a class in itself. Chazal tell us. Says Yaakov Avino, I crossed the Arden with just my stick. And when he said just my stick, he meant it. No clothing, nothing, not a nickel, zero, zilch. Just his walking stick, the, ma- the makel of Yaakov Avino. But don't underestimate that makel. The Midrash tells us a fantastic idea that this makel, he hollowed it out from inside and it had a screw off cap on top. And what did he fill the hollow insides of this stick? He filled it up to the top with oil. And you're going to love this shot because Hanukkah is on its way. And Hanukkah is on its way to this beach as well now. Listen to this. He filled up the stick with oil. And it, had, it was one of those screw-off caps. You ever see the Irish? <laughs> they walk around with a screw-off cap of anything you could imagine you could hollow. And they fill it with whiskey. And they're always drunk because of that. Right? They're carrying whatever you want. The Irish. And they screw off the top, you know, of a, they can have a pen. And, and in the middle of work, they're there. They're, and you have no idea what's going on. He had the old screw-off cap stick. But he filled it up with oil. Why oil? Why not, any, why not water? Why not anything else? And the answer is Yaakov Avino. When he went out on a journey, he had to have a backup and an emergency supply of one item more than anything else. He wasn't worried about the money. He wasn't even worried about the shirt on his back. He didn't take backups for anything else but one thing. One thing. He doesn't care. Comes whatever may come. This is the one thing he can never run out of. Oil. Yaakov Avino, to come a night that he wouldn't spend the entire night learning Torah? How am I going to learn? How am I going to learn? And sure enough, the one backup, the one emergency provision that he brought for his journey was oil. So that, comes the night times, never, no matter what, would he ever be in a position that he didn't have a little, little flicker of light to be able to sit and learn Torah the entire night. Take a look at the way Gidolim packed for trips. Now, I know we have a big winter vacation coming up soon. And it's amazing what goes into our suitcases and what Yaakov Avina was worried about. You know that? Think about that for a minute. I don't know about you, but anytime we go traveling, I don't get involved in the nitty-gritties. It's not my strength. Thank God Hashem gave me a wife who is beyond organized. She is perfectly Perfect in her organization. Matter of fact, every year that we had a Shabbaton, and the guys of the school came out to Lakewood, and they came into the house, they looked at us and said, wow, Rabbi, is this a house or a museum? And I said, no, 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 certain chairs you can sit on, and certain chairs are antiques, Ella Lirotam Bilvad, you know what I mean? And then when they came upstairs to the different bedrooms, they looked into our utility closet. We had a utility closet in Lakewood, ladies. They opened up the utility closet, and they saw that all the towels were color-coordinated. They were all set up. 
It was a backup for all the shampoos and all the conditioners. And one guy walked in and said, Rabbi, uh, I don't know, but it looks a little bit more like a, a drugstore upstairs. He says, when I, when I looked through the closet, I thought I was in Dwayne Reed. I said, yeah, that's when you marry someone who's extremely super organized. And without that organization, I could never have done the back and forth for 15 years commuting every Shabbat from Lakewood to Brooklyn. But she had the system down to a science. She knew exactly which Shabbat clothes belonged in Brooklyn and which Shabbat clothes belonged in Lakewood. And it was that one Shabbat every year that was the turnover Shabbat where we went from winter clothes to summer clothes. It, it, it was an amazing concept. Someone was so put together. So she does the packing. But every time we go anywhere and we fly, I always turn to her. You got the passports? You got the passports? You got the passports? I just want to make sure we got the passports. You got the passports? You see, because when you go out to a journey, you see at the last moments when people get nervous in crunch time, what's important to them and what's important to their journey. Where the suitcase is okay, listen, you know, they come, they go, what am I supposed to do? But if those, anything happens to those passports, we're up the creek. That's the way Yaakov Avinu felt about his oil. The money, the this, the cattle, the wealth, even his clothing. Okay. But if anything happens to that passport, the Torah, my oil, I'm up the creek. And because of that, Look at where he put the emphasis. And what did he do with that oil? He consecrated that rock to be the future of the site of the Bet HaMikdash. Now listen, ladies, well. That oil that came from the staff and the stick of Yaakov Avino that was earmarked for his Torah learning. He used that oil that night to be able, that morning rather, after that night, to be able to consecrate the great rock, later known as the Evin HaShetiah, which according to some is in the Kotel, which according to some was going to be the replacement of the Aron in the Kodesh HaKodashim in the time of Bayit Sheri. But that oil also, the rabbis tell us, was the same oil that was given down to the next generation, and it was that oil that they anointed Aron HaKohen, the Kohen Gadol. And that same oil was the oil that's going to anoint the children of Aaron HaKohen, all the future Kwanim Gedolim. And that same oil, Shemuel Hanavi, anointed King Shaul as the first king of Israel. And that same oil anointed David HaMelech. And that same oil anointed Shlomo HaMelech. And that same oil was used and found as the one Pach Shemen, the night of Hanukkah. And the oil that they lit that first night was the oil of Yaakov Avinu, says the Midrash. It's brought the Zohar HaKadosh. And that's the miracle. From the miraculous oil, the oil of Torah. En ora ela Torah. Torah is light. You know where the Torah, where the light came from? It came from someone's Torah. You can't have light in this world without Torah. They go synonymous. They're attached by the hip. They're Siamese twins. They go hand in hand. Torah and light. You can't have one without the other. There's no light without Torah. That's why when someone needs advice, you go to a rabbi, show me the light. Show me your light. You must have learned so many years without sleeping. Show me the light that you, that, that you came up with all these years of learning. I need advice. I need clarity. I need light. And that was the oil, the Torah oil that gave us the story and the miracle of Hanukkah, Haba Aleinu Litova, very soon in another few weeks. And this is the same oil that's going to anoint Melech HaMashiach, Bikaro Look how far this oil went. Why? How did it have such longevity? How? And the answer is, because when you sacrifice for Torah learning, the returns, the dividends, 
that come back from that sacrifice of Torah is everlasting. It doesn't stop. It's too big to be contained. It's too big to stop. Just the opposite. As time goes on, it only picks up speed. That's why, ladies, I know what you're paying for tuition in your yeshivot. I'm also paying. And I want you to understand something. It's a sacrifice. It's not easy. But that's the oil of Yaakov Avinu. When you sacrifice to send your kid to the best yeshivot, and you sacrifice to stand behind them, and you give him an opportunity to go to Israel to learn for another year post high school, when everybody else is saying, what is this kid going to do with his life? Why are you wasting time? Why are you sending him to Israel to learn? You got to send him to important stuff, like, like, like opening a cell phone store. Oh, there's the life. That's the signature and mark of success. What do you mean, Rabbi? He doesn't have even a showcase yet. How is he going to get married? Married? You want to have Rahmanut on his wife? Let her marry a, a, a man. An independent, put-together guy with Midot. That comes through Torah. When they come back from Israel, they come back refined. They come back mature. mature. They come back with a head. A different head. They see life differently. They see marriage differently. They see their kids differently. They're better husbands. Isn't it worth a six-month investment? Isn't it worth the oil of Yaakov Avinu? Look how far the dividends, look how the ripples of this investment reaches out for generations to come. Because what? He gave the kid a few months in a place that he can go and he can sit in a holy place and he can learn Yomam Valayla like Yaakov Avinu did in Shevever. And then they come back home. And boy, do they come back better. Boy, do they come back refined. They come back, tell me they chachamim. And now let them go out to work. Now let them go out to college. But it's a different person. It's so much more quality of a person. He'll be a better husband, a better father. Wouldn't you want that? Because those ripples continue to last and they go on and on and on. That's the message of the oil of Yaakov Avinu. When you give that sacrifice for Torah and you make Torah your priority, the way Yaakov made the oil a priority, the returns are for generations to come. And finally, Yaakov Avinu makes his way to the house of Lavan to finally reach the mission that he was sent for in the first place, to find a wife and later on wives. And here's the moment of truth where we all know Yaakov Avinu was switched under the chuppah. Lavan switches Rachel for Leah. Rachel keeps the dignity of her sister, tells her the secret sign, the simanim, which turned out to be the halachot of Tahara Avida. And sure enough, the next day Yaakov Avinu comes to Lavan and says, what did you do to me? Kirimitani, you ramai, you, you liar, you tricker, you scammed me. What did you do? You switched my wives. Havali ishti, I want my wife. Bring me my wife, bring me Rachel, bring me the one that you know I was coming to work seven years for. And Lavan tells him what he tells him. It doesn't matter what he tells him, it doesn't make, it doesn't make a difference. Today he'll tell him one thing, tomorrow he'll tell him another thing. It has nothing to do with the truth. And then finally, Lavan says, oh, you want her also? Okay, work another seven years. Amazing. Lavan Avinu, Lavan Shema Yisrael. Lavan Ha'arami, Shema Yisrael. I meant to say Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, Lavan is like a credit card. He draws you in with 0% for six months. And then after that, you pay for the rest of your life. Some people are like that. I met people like that over the years. Just getting involved with them, you end up paying for the rest of your life. They're like a, like, like a pit of quicksand. They just don't let you get out of their grip. And they're suffocating. 
in a certain horrible way. Lavon was like that. He was such a manipulator and a mind game player, and he just couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself. And because of that, Yaakov Avinu, he comes to the house. He's already paying off debt that he didn't even take on for 14 years. That's why Chazal tells us at the end of 14 years, Yosef was born. Yosef was born after 14 years. Wow. Because Yosef was the first year that Yaakov Avinu actually made a profit. And it goes to show you that your kids bring you tremendous mazal. Each kid brings a different package. Each kid brings to the parents a different mazal. Just when you thought you had your own mazal. <laughs> Our kids, God bless them a million times. They bring us certain mazal. They bring us certain realities. When they come into our home and into our mission, into our circle, we take upon a new mission with each child and a new mazal. Yosef, milashon Yosef Hashem, elif pa'amim, right? Mosif. Yosef was born that year because that was the first year that Yaakov Avinu was out of debt. He finally paid off both his wives. And now finally was the first year that Yaakov Avinu was going to start working for his own parnasah. That was the year Yosef was born. Yaakov Avinu comes and says, Lavan, I want my wife. But then Yaakov Avinu says something at the end of the Pasuk that literally will make your eyebrows go up. And you know who says this? Rashi. Rashi says, Yaakov Avinu uses the following words. Give me my wife. Ve'avo'a eleha. Whoa, those aren't words that you'd expect from a rabbi. Those aren't words that you'd expect from a gadol. Matter of fact, those aren't words, says Rashi, that you wouldn't even expect from a common person. Rashi says shvelim, which means low people. Not that they even talk that way. Yaakov, that's the way you talk? Give me my wife so I can come on her? Is that, is that the way you speak? Avo aleha? Is that the way you talk? You're demanding your wife to have relations with her? Is this the way you tell Lavan? Ladies, think about this for a minute. Here you have a kid. Think about this. You have a guy. He's dating a girl. Things get hot and heavy after seven, eight, nine, ten dates. Oh, he comes home. Ma, dad, this is the one. This is the one. Beautiful. They reach the Shadchanit. They start setting up everything. He goes. He proposes. And now he comes to his future in-laws to ask for their daughter in marriage. Shema Yisrael. Could you imagine if this kid walked in and said, Please, I'd like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. That guy. He's not leaving the house through the doors. That much I guarantee you. Could you imagine talking that way? So how do you explain Yaakov Avinu to Gadol Ador saying such a wording? Give me my wife so that I may have relations with her. That's not the way we talk. Says the Ben Ishchai. Oh, we finally got to the Ben Ishchai. Finally. We finally got to the Ben Ishchai. The Benishchai that was on the four feet of water in the basements of the government buildings in Baghdad. The Benishchai that was rescued by the American government in, in, in Desert Storm. Brought back to the United States and resuscitated and revived. So I can tell it to you right now. Says the Benishchai, don't you dare take the words of Yaakov Avinu in such a lightweight. You're not talking about a lightweight. You're talking about a Gadol Ador. He's a heavyweight in Shamayim. And his words are heavy words. You cannot take those words lightly. You have to read what he really meant. This is Yaakov Avinu who was upset and angry and demands, Lavan, I have a mission in this world. I am here to bring the Jewish people and the nation of Klal Yisrael from me and my wives. I am destined to have 12 tribes. And you're playing games. 
You're playing games. You don't know what type of games you're playing, Yaakov told Lavan. You're playing with the destiny of the world. Bereshit bara Elohim. Bishvil Torah Yisrael The reason and the purpose that this world was created was solely that there should be a Jewish people and there should be a Torah and the Jews will accept the Torah and keep the Torah. Without that, the world will cease to exist. And you're coming in between me and bringing forward the future of the Jewish people? Says Yaakov Avinu, I need to have 12 tribes. I need to have my wife so that Am Yisrael will finally exist. He wasn't talking the way you thought he was talking. He was telling him, I need my children, the Jewish people, 12 tribes, the nation that's going to hold up the world. And you're playing games, switching wives on me. You're still with your, your scam artists. Says the Ben Shai. Do you know when a husband and wife are Yotzeh, fully the mitzvah of having children, at what point does that happen? At what point? How many children do you need to have, ladies? One and one. A boy and a girl. A boy and a girl. That's the right answer. The mitzvah pruvu is, is mikuyam through a couple when they have a boy and a girl. After that, it's all gravy. <laughs> but, but I'm saying, but it's a boy and a girl. Amazing. Why not a boy and a boy? Why not two girls? I love my girls. I wouldn't give my girls away for, for anything. Why, why, not, why not two girls? Why a boy and a girl? And all of a sudden, ding, ding, ding. That's it. The bell goes off in heaven. You get the mitzvah of the first mitzvah in Torah. Why a boy and a girl? The answer is, says the Ben Chai, and this is already brought in the works of Zohar, that when a husband and a wife has a boy and a girl, they completed God's name, Yudke Vavke. They brought God's name to a complete completion. How do you see that? The Yud is the husband. The He is the wife. Why is that? Well, that's simple. The Yud is Ish. Ish has a yud. Isha doesn't have a yud, but she has a hay. And therefore the yud symbolizes the man, and the hay symbolizes the woman. And then, when they have children, the boy is the vav. Why? Why is a boy a vav? What does a vav have to do with a boy? Well, the Gemara says that a boy, bra kare de avuha. That's Aramaic for meaning that a son is the extension of his father. If we take a yud, which is the man, the father, and you extend the yud, what letter do you get? A vav. So the vav is the son. And the he, which later on is going to be this young lady, Isha, is the daughter. Through the husband, yud, and the wife, he, having children, they complete God's name in such an amazing way. They have a vav, a son, and a he, a daughter. And by completing God's name, you fulfill the commandment of having children. This is an amazing idea. If this is the case, says the Benish Chai, I'm now about to reveal to you, he says, what Yaakov Avinu was really saying to Lavan. He says, Lavan, I want to bring the tribes of Israel. I want to bring my children, the Jewish nation, forward. What was the words that he said? Ve'avoa eleha. Says the Benish Chai, ve'avoa is conglomeration of two words. Ve'avoha. Avo, vav, he. I want to bring the Vav He. Eleha. El Yud He. I want to bring the Vav He, which is the children. El Yud He, to their parents. I want to be parents that are going to have the 12 tribes of the Jewish people. Again, for you to see it, the word Ve'avoha is spelled Vav, Aleph, Bet, He, Ve'avoha. How do I see that? 
Vav, Aleph, Bet, Aleph, I missed an Aleph there. Aleph, hey, that's Avol, Vav, hey. I will bring the Vav, hey. Those are the children, the son and the daughter. Eleha, El, Yud, hey. I want to complete God's name. I want to fulfill the mitzvah and my destiny, says Yaakov Avinu, with my wives to bring forward the 12 tribes of the Jewish people to the world so that the world will have a reason to exist. We'll be able to complete complete uh, creation. And you, Lavan, on the other hand, you're still playing your game, switching wives. Every time I walk down the street in New York City, which is not too often at all, and there's always that guy there at the corner. You remember that guy? He has the... Uh, he has the three, uh, the three uh, cups and the nut. Every time I look at him, I think of Lavan Yaakov. Every time. Okay, which kupa is your wife under now? You know, I'm going to switch him for this, I'm going to switch him for that, I'm going to switch him for this. That's the way he lived. He lived with someone that was constantly, constantly getting in the way of the destiny of the Jewish people, says the, says the Benish Chai. This is what he was really saying. Don't think for one minute, Yaakov Avinu's words were taken at face value. He was telling him big stuff. I want to bring the I want to bring the tribes forward. I want to bring together Yudke Vavke. If this is the case, ladies, we take a big lesson from here. We've spoken about many lessons today, which is not really my style. Usually we take one and hit it out, but it is what it is. Those words cannot have been taken simple. When Talmidei Chachamim speak to you, don't take their words lightly. I want to tell you something. I've had over the years, many times, that I went to my own rebbe's. I'm not even talking about Mkubalim. I'm not talking about major tzaddikim, Zohar. My regular, my rebbe's, that they were just great Talmidei Chachamim. And I asked them their advice. And so many times they surprised me at what their answer was. And then sometimes, years later, I would go back to them and i thank them. i said, wow, rebbe, the advice you gave me at the time you told it to me, I thought, I don't know, where did that come from? But then I listened to it, because you're my Rebbe. And I stuck to it. And I can't believe it that years later, it turned out to be the best thing. Thank you, Rebbe, for giving me the advice. And you know what they told me? I said that. You know how many times I had that? I told you that. I told you, I, I told you to do that. What was I thinking? And the answer is you weren't thinking. It wasn't you. When you come to a Rebbe, I'm not talking about me, a rabbi. A rabbi that his base is honestly and genuinely, solidly anchored to Torah. With real hashkafot. With proper, proper Torah hashkafot. I have to underline that today. Because today not every person that has the title rabbi is someone that you should go to for advice. I'm talking about a proper, anchored Torah official rav. And they tell you something. It's not their words. Hashem at that moment is putting in that rabbi's mouth the words that you need to hear. And sometimes they themselves are like, why, I said that? You are a conduit to those words. Whether you said it or not is a different story. I've seen this a ton of times. My Rebbe, who's now here in America, he just came in for a week, he's in Muncie. And he came for a, uh, to marry off a grandchild, Rabbi Rabinovich. He's uh, somebody very special. He's someone that I've spoken about many of the classes. He lives in Avadya 4. I just want to close the class with an amazing story. Uh, just to show you how the words of the rabbis cannot be taken lightly. And just when you thought you understood what they were saying, you had no clue what they were talking about. And their words are far beyond reaching than anything we could imagine. Open your hearts and listen to this. So he came last week, and I was praying one morning that he should call me. I'm telling you, he called me. 
And he said to me, oh, come out to, you know, to Muncie, visit me. And it turned out it was Wednesday. It was Arab Thanksgiving. And I told, I told him, Rebbe, you know what the traffic is on Thanksgiving to come out? I mean, I, I'm coming anyways. I don't care. I'll wait three hours of traffic. I said, but give me a bracha that, you know, uh, he said, don't worry, you'll get here quicker than you think. Now, when I, when I put in the GPS of the, of the address in Muncie that he gave me, the GPS said over two and some odd hours, I don't know, whatever it was. But it turns out that at the time that the GPS made the calculations, there must have been some major accident out there on the road. But the time I got out there to that spot, the accident was cleared. So the roads, Baruch Hashem, so instead of it being the two and a half hours originally, the, you know, it, it, it claimed to have been, it kept cycling back and back. And, you know, we found eight minutes of quicker time here and five minutes of quicker. And little by little, before I knew it, I was in Muncie about an hour and 25 minutes later, which for Erev Thanksgiving is pretty darn good. Nonetheless, I came to him, and before anything, I thanked him for having me. And he told me something fantastic as I walked through the front door. Before he even told me Shalom Aleichem, he jumps out of his chair and he gives me this big hug. And he says to me, do you know what's the thing here in America that's the biggest challenge for American Jews? And my head started going. I said, Rebbe, I don't know if you want to go there. I said, you want to really know? And he says to me, before you tell me, he says, I want to tell you. And my head was thinking, internet, social media, arayot, I mean, it doesn't end. He says to me, the biggest challenge of Jews in America today is loneliness and depression. He says, everything else comes out from these two. He says, today in heaven, they are giving out bounty, a tremendous amount of shefa and wealth and blessing and success to any person that takes upon themselves to be a purveyor, to lift up the spirits of other people and make them happy. Wow, that was my Shalom Aleichem. That was before he even said hi. I already learned from my Rebbe something. It was well worth, even if it took me five hours to get there. That was already a lesson. Make yourself someone that makes other people happy. This is a side note, but now let me tell you the amazing story. Years ago, when my wife and I decided to make the big jump and come and move from Lakewood to Brooklyn, and don't think to us this was a big, big, big issue. We had to take our kids out of school. We had to take our kids out from their friends. They grew up their whole life with their friends, their neighbors, their everybody. But we had to do it as a sacrifice to come and continue doing what we were doing. We moved to Brooklyn. Where we going to find a house? At least you have to understand something. My house in Lakewood, we bought it many years ago. It was a big house. And my wife was a very gifted decorator. What she did with that house, unbelievable. I mean, there were times I used to come home from Kolel, I would see her on a ladder with her friends, sponge painting the walls, different type of decorative sponge painting that they just came out with something new and something wow. And what she did with those walls, I'm telling you, was mind boggling. And, and, and my den, if I would show you what the den looked like, she came up with this concept, you know, she calls it the den, we call it the Starbucks room. You know, there's a nail head uh, couch there and on the floor she put this basket weave of a type of a uh, carpet. And on the ceiling, she had this professional artist draw a drawing of what looked like a hardwood floor. So when you're in the room, it looks like you're upside down. I mean, this is, I, mean I don't wish she came up with this stuff, but it's amazing. It's brilliant stuff she came up with. This is her talent. Her mother's an incredible artist, you know, Susan Sutton. And, and the whole family has that artsy, you know, gift. So to take a girl who put her blood into the walls of her house and tell her, we're shipping you out, you're moving. Okay, where am I moving? To Brooklyn. And what are you going to give her? Where are you going to put her? In a basement, what are you going to do to her? And we started looking around for two and a half months. 
So you have no idea what we saw, what they showed us. You have no, you have no, you have no idea what they asked the money for, the, the price for a, for a hole from Gainam. They were asking, and unbelievable, you know, I was, I, was, I, I, I was blown away. And now I cry with the guys in my shul who tell me, Rabbi, I'm trying to buy a house for five years now. I can't touch a driveway, a garage I can't touch. I said, listen, I, I tried to rent and I couldn't find anything. How are you trying to buy something? It turns out that after three months with brokers, which literally brokers, they make you broke. I'm telling you, after a while, it was one place. After the next, they would drive. Finally, we found a house. Was this the dream house? Oh, <laughs> not even close. But it was the first house that when I brought my wife in, she looked around and said, wow, this house has personality. <laughs> oh my gosh, I turned the price and book it. <laughs> book it. So they put the paperwork together and I stopped pulling together every nickel that I've ever had. Security deposits, first two, three months payment, last two, three months payment. In case you sneeze and the light bulb breaks, we need a payment for that also. And we need key money. And then we need the commissions up front. And then could you give it to me in cash? And then could I, it doesn't end. And I'm like, gosh, let me just into the house already. The big day came. The day of what we would call, now I understand why they call it a closing. I'm not buying anything. I'm only losing at this point. But they call it a closing because now I understand what went into that moment. It's worth called a closing. We had the big closing, the realtor, the broker, and the balabite are showing up the next morning, 9 o'clock, and we're going to sign our lives away to take this house. So that my wife can decorate it for the guy that we're paying an arm and a leg and two toes for, so that we can live there. It was a big morning. This was a big moment. The night before, I called my Rebbe, Rabbi Rabinovich in Israel. I said, Rebbe, I'm taking the house. Finally, because he was behind me to make the move. He told me, you have to move to Brooklyn. So I said, okay, we're going. Rebbe, we found the house. Three months. We finally found the house. Give me a blessing that everything in the closing tomorrow should go well, go easy. No problems. He says to me, oh, very nice, very nice. Where's the house? I said, where's the house? Uh, Rebbe, uh, you're a Yushalmi. You know Brooklyn at all? I mean, if I tell you where is the house, will it make a difference to you? He says, no, no, no. Tell me, where's the house? I said, the house is uh, about a block away from the shul. I said, oh, oh no, lot of. I said, what do you mean, lot of? What do you mean, lot of? I just killed myself for three months. It's the night before the closing. What do you mean, lot of? It's a lot of love said that. What do you mean, lot of said that, Rebbe? You know what it went through to find something half decent, half, half decent, to be able to find for my wife to give me an ulai of yes. And now you're telling me, Angie? He says, no, no, not good. I said, Rebbe, why? He says, it's not good for a rabbi to live too close to the shul. I said, Rebbe, listen, Animivater, believe me, if you're talking about my kavod, Mandi, no kavod. Believe me, you work two weeks in a rabbi position. Believe me, kavod is the last thing you get. No kavod. You get rocks, you get pedals. These days they're throwing sambusak, but it doesn't matter. But the bottom line is that, that if that's the issue, let it go. I'm vivater, I let it go. He says, no, 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 it's not about you. A rabbi should not live too close to the shul. I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be joking me. You've got to be joking me. How in the world am I going to call up everybody involved now and tell them tomorrow morning's, you know what went into this, tomorrow morning's closing is off. It's off. I said, Rebbe, I, I, he says, I'm telling you, the house is a good house. It's just not for you. You should not be a block away from the shul. Okay? No is no. No is no. And that's another thing to learn. No is no. We don't take rabbis for when they just say the things we want them to hear. And then when they say the stuff that we don't want them to hear, ah, what does rabbis know? These days, it's great. 1-800-DIAL-A-HETER, you know? People call up and they shop rabbis. I'm waiting for someone to put out a website, you know, that, like kayak, you can shop rabbis to find the cheapest heter out. It's ridiculous. You have a rabbi, you stick to him. What he says yes is yes and no is no. And sometimes it'll go in your favor and sometimes it won't. 
but that's what it means to have a Rav. And if he says no, is no. The toughest phone call I had to make in my life that night. I called up the realtor. Wow, was she yelling. I had to hold the phone like this. Screaming, yelling. I had other people looking at it. They were interested and now they went somewhere else. I said, I feel horrible. I, I'm telling you honestly, I offered her money. I offered her money. I didn't give her money. <laughs> but I offered her money. You know, it was like the East Ninth Tfadalu, you know what I mean? You know, Tfadalu, Tfadalu. I offered her money. I said, please, I'll give you money just for your time. Just for your, I don't know. She, she, she slammed the phone down on me. It was, it was a bad situation. I felt horrible. What am I supposed to do? We didn't take the house. And now we start from scratch. From scratch. Three weeks later, a Talmud of mine calls me from Israel. And he's asking me advice about different things that's going on in yeshiva. And he says to me, you know, by the way, you know, pray for my father. Because he has a really bad tenant that's renting the house next door. And this guy hasn't paid rent for six months. And now he has to throw the guy out. I said, really? Where's the house? <laughs> and he tells me, it's, you know, it's on the 7th. I said, really? I said, um... So that means it'll be vacant soon. He said, yeah, probably in the next week or two. I said, listen, could you ask your father? You know, I'm looking for a house forever. Maybe, you know, I can look. He says, yeah, wow, it'd be great to have the rabbi next door. Absolutely. I said, okay. And sure enough, they kicked out whoever this guy was, and uh, the house was vacant. So me and my wife went out. We looked at the house, and she liked the house. I called up the rabbi. I said, Rav, I found another house. I didn't say a word. He says, mazel tov. I said, what do you mean mazel tov? Don't you want to know where the house is? Don't you want to know the location? He said, oh yeah, Ken, Ken, Ken. Info, where, where, where's the house? I told him it's two blocks away from the shul. Ah, oh, Zemetsuya. I said, what? What is going on here? I don't get this. I called you last time, a block away. No, Rabbi, too close to the, oh, it's the difference of a block? That's what we're talking about here? That's what we're squabbling over? He said, no, this house is Zemetsuyan. He says, take this house and make smachot in this house. I said, Amen. We took the house. A year or so and change, a year and a half or two later, whatever it was, I called the rabbi back. Harav, my daughter's engaged. Oh, Mazel Tov. Who's the boy? I said, the boy is so-and-so. Really, where does he live? I said, where does he live? He lives next door. Oh, it's good you took the house. <laughs> their words, their words, ladies, are well far and beyond. Let's cherish those words and the Torah that backs up those words and the oil that lights up the world of Torah. Remember, remember what Talmidei Chachamim are about. Remember the sacrifices in our kids that they'll be the future Talmidei Chachamim. And let's remember as well that that infusion of oil and Torah into our kids will go for many good generations to come. Thank you for listening.